Hi, it's Brendan O'Neill here. Now that we've launched The Brendan O'Neill Show and are three episodes in, we need your help to keep the podcast going and growing. You can pledge your support for the show at patreon.com forward slash The Brendan O'Neill Show. And in return, you'll get some exciting rewards, early access to each podcast, a Q&A session at the end of each show, and a signed copy of my collection of essays, A Duty to Offend. That's patreon.com slash The Brendan O'Neill Show. It would be great to have you on board. And now, this month's show with Jonathan Haidt. It's actually a very exciting time to be thinking about identity. My hope is people are on the left, but are somehow turned off by the narrow, hateful, binary, polarizing vision of identity is about the good people who are the non-straight white males versus the bad people who are the straight white males. Like most people aren't straight white males, don't want to think that way. A lot of people really hate being told or assumed, oh, you're Asian, you must believe X. Like oftentimes the action is, screw you. Hello and welcome to The Brendan O'Neill Show with me, Brendan O'Neill. This is a monthly podcast in which an esteemed guest joins me to talk about the big ideas, the bad ideas, the problems and the controversies of life in the early 21st century. This month, I am delighted to be joined by Jonathan Haidt. Jonathan is Professor of Ethical Leadership at New York University, which is where we are right now, and he is a public intellectual in the true meaning of that title. His books include The Happiness Hypothesis, The Righteous Mind, and most recently, co-written with Greg Lukianoff, The Coddling of the American Mind. This new book is an expansion of Jonathan and Greg's smash hit 2015 essay in The Atlantic, which looked at how more and more American students are demanding protection from words and ideas they don't like. It was one of the key texts, perhaps the key text, in terms of drawing public attention to the crisis of freedom on campus, to the spread of safe spaces, disinvitations, identitarian one-upmanship, and other new modern means of shutting down allegedly controversial speakers and ideas. Jonathan is one of a fairly small band of public thinkers who has been willing to confront this new politics of censorship, and also, more importantly, I think, to confront what is arguably the thing that gave birth to it in the first place, the politics of identity. John, welcome to the show. Thanks, Brendan. It's a pleasure to be talking with you again. I want to start by talking about some of the ideas in your new book. Uh, what I really, uh, I have some disagreements, which I hope we will touch upon later. But what I really like about the approach taken by you and Greg is that you don't just bemoan the existence of an illiberal climate on campus. And nor, nor do you seek to pin the blame for it entirely on the march of Pinko's and cultural Marxists through the institutions. Although there is an element of that, which I want to touch on later as well. What you do instead is you dig down to try to uncover the roots of this new fragility among young adults, which means that more and more students feel unable and seem genuinely unable to deal with ideas they find difficult or offensive. And one thing you hone in on is what you refer to as a culture of safetyism, a kind of sanctification of safety, especially in childhood, which means that children spend less time on their own, away from their parents, and therefore they don't fully develop the autonomy and the skills necessary for dealing with stress or conflict, or, or even disagreement. So uh, to begin with, could you outline what you mean by safetyism mm -hmm. and explain what you think its role has been in relation to the new mm -hmm. intolerance in the academy? Sure. But first, I'd like to pick up on something you said in your introduction, which I was very pleased to hear, uh, which is that uh, people might expect us to be right-wing zealots coming in to... to complain about Marxists taking over the academy. <laughs> and and we're not that at all. Um, and so uh, I think it's helpful for listeners to understand the two very different origin stories of, of me and Greg, and then I'll, we'll get to safetyism. Mm. Um, my own research, I'm a social psychologist, I study morality. And um, my book, The Righteous Mind, is really all about my research and how it applies to politics. But 
something in what in your introduction made me think of uh, uh, think to read the the uh, the epigram at the beginning of of that book. It's from Baruch Spinoza, uh, and it is. I have striven not to laugh at human actions, not to weep at them, not to hate them, but to understand them. Now, I was born in 1963, and I felt growing up in the 70s and 80s that I missed all the interesting stuff. <laughs> Things were really boring. Um, and uh, uh, I don't think that now. We're living in an incredibly exciting and frightening time, and it is a wonderfully exciting to be a social scientist right now. Things are really changing fast. And so our book, The Coddling of the American Mind, is not a moralistic book. It's not a lament. We're trying as hard as we can to understand people. We assume everybody is morally motivated. People are pursuing the good as they see it. Um, that's what the book is about. Um, the book begins with Greg Lukianoff's story, which is that Greg was subject to—he's uh, he's prone to depression. And uh, he began to notice— um, after he, he had a suicidal depression in 2007, he learned cognitive behavioral therapy in 2008. And then he began to notice that on campus, uh, beginning in t 2013, students were doing the exact same cognitive distortions that he had learned not to do in CBT. Greg is the president of the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education. So Greg is coming at this from a position really of compassion. Why are students suddenly acting as though words and books are going to harm them. This is really bad for them. So the book has really its origins in compassion. And then my, my approach to it is curiosity and moral psychology. What is this new moral culture? That's what we're trying to do is un unpack this and ultimately help universities become better able to do the magic that only they can do in terms of education and discovery of truth. So, all right. So with that intro, now back to your question about safetyism. Safety is obviously a good thing, and especially when it comes to children, we all want our kids to be safe. Um, but as Aristotle said, any virtue carried to extremes becomes a vice. And if you can imagine being raised by parents who thought safety is good, no, safety is the most important thing, and therefore we will never trade off safety against anything else. So Johnny, if you want to go outside and play, go ahead. Oh, wait. There's a risk. There's a there's thunder in the area. You might be struck by lightning. No, you can't go out. Um, the risk is only one in a million. You still can't go out. Um, and so, when safety becomes um, a fetish, when uh, when we we raise kids to think the world is dangerous and we're going to protect you, we are failing to raise kids who can engage actively with the world. And um, that is there are many. Back, there are many background threads that led to the changes on campus in 2014, 2015. But the emphasis, the overemphasis on safety, especially emotional safety, what a terrible, terrible term that is. Um, that's part of the backstory to the changes on campus. I completely agree. We all think the idea of physical safety is pretty good. People should not be hurt un uh, unless they really need to be or if they uh, are taking risks uh, which are so worth taking that physical um, pain as a consequence might be a price worth paying. But um, when it comes to emotional safety or the phrase that is used on British campuses, which is intellectual safety, Whoa. then no, we wait, have... Wait, wait. I can't wait. I have not heard that term. Yes. What does that even mean? What it means is is precisely the kind of things that you guys talk about in the book, which is, in, in essence, uh, intellectual safety, safety from particular ideas, safety from particular speakers and controversies. It's the safe space, right? It's the, it's the, it's the intellectual comfort, the idea that you're right to feel mentally, intellectually, emotionally comfortable overrides other people's right to say what they want or to come to your campus and give a controversial speech and so on. And I'm going to come back to that. But the thing that I thought was really important about your book, which you've just touched upon now, is the element of compassion, is the attempt to understand what's going on rather than to rail against it, which I think is a really useful and positive endeavor. Because it strikes me, and I had a similar thought to you guys, because it strikes me that the thing that I've realized more and more as I speak on campuses in the UK, uh, and also on campuses in the US, is that a lot of young people on campus seem to genuinely lack the raw materials of adulthood. So they lack the skills that earlier generations might have had in terms of negotiating public discussion, negotiating public disagreement, negotiating controversy and so on. And it feels very real, in fact. And, and in fact, a few months ago, this earlier this year, I witnessed my first ever triggering 
Now, I've always thought that triggering is this jokey word, mm-hmm. and, and I've heard people say it. I've heard people say to me, oh, you triggered me. Uh-huh. I don't like you. Meaning you made your... me feel something. You made me feel something, right? So th- that's what I thought it meant, and yeah. that's largely what it does mean. Yeah. But I was giving a talk, and um, one of the members of the audience, a young woman, asked me my opinion on rape culture and the problem of rape culture and my response was to say i have a problem with the term rape culture because i think it conflates a crime rape with a non-crime culture and in the process it acts as an invitation to censorship and i argued that it rehabilitates the old stuffy conservative idea of media effects theory which Mm. is this idea that culture magazines books films and so on can um, directly cause people to commit crimes and i said that's a very in my view a very backward censorious idea and her response to my comments were was extraordinary i mean she hyperventilated she couldn't get her words out she struggled to breathe and then eventually she had to, had to be helped from the room mm-hmm. and it's at that moment earlier this year that i realized this is an incredibly serious problem and that's why that's the thing that touched me most about you and greg's book which is the desire to take this issue incredibly seriously Mm -hmm. and not to write these people off as actors or people who are playing up but to take seriously the fact that they feel they cannot um, negotiate these controversies so do you agree that that there's a realness to this which some of the possibly more right-wing critics of campus culture sometimes don't appreciate well, I've never heard a story like yours. That is, I've never heard... Obviously, panic attacks are real. Mm-hmm. It sounds like she was having a panic attack. I don't think I've ever... You know, I've been teaching... I'm 54 years old. I've been teaching since I was about 26, 27 in graduate school. And I've never actually seen anyone have a panic attack, uh, like in an academic setting. Um, so they're very, very rare. Mm. Uh, that's the first thing. Um, the second thing is that... The um, the psychiatrists that we've consulted have all been uniform in saying that the way to recover from trauma, if someone if someone was a prisoner of war, if they were raped, if they saw a murder, the way to recover from trauma is systematic desensitization. That is, you um, you have to get to the point where if you see the word murder or the word rape, or if someone stands at a microphone and, and talks about rape culture that this doesn't activate uh, a recurrence of a traumatic episode. Mm. And the more you are exposed to the word with nothing bad happening afterwards, the quicker you extinguish the Pavlovian response. All I can think of is that this woman perhaps had been so well protected, she'd never encountered someone talking in the way that you had, so that for her, it was able to reactivate traumatic experiences, and it led her to have a panic. Now, it might just be she was prone to panic attacks, Mm, and it had nothing to do with whatever trauma she had survived. So um, I think that we we have to be very careful about saying, uh, if one person out of a million might have this reaction, we should change the norms of the academy. This does an enormous disservice to the other 999,999 people. And in fact, it does an enormous disservice to the one who has the panic attack. On this issue, one one point of disagreement that some of the people, I guess, in our field who are interested in criticizing this new politics and this new intolerance and and the problems that are arising on campus, one of the disagreements is between a psychological understanding of the problem or an ideological understanding of the problem. And I think this is is quite an illuminating difference of opinion, in fact, because some of your critics, as you will be aware, uh, argue that you and, and Greg over-psychologize the problem on campus. You know, there's this idea that um, they are snowflakes, there's super fragility, they're weak, and they're weak as a consequence of helicopter parenting Mm -hmm. and other uh, early experiences in their lives, whereas others are more keen to emphasize the ideological contributions right. mm-hmm. to the problem on campus. And, and that's right. And, what they yeah, I'm usually guessing this is mean, one of the places that you think you disagree with me. Well, I know you've said, you've said something like this in writing. In fact, it's, I kind of, I'm not sure who I 
who I disagree with on this question, in fact. So I wanted to ask you a, a question in relation to it to try and help me understand it more. Because I think one of the problems with the um, those who are pushing a more ideological interpretation of the problem on campus is that I do think they sometimes have a rather crude um, view of the problem and, and 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 it's quite a historical view so they pin the blame entirely on certain teachers and their promotion of mm. certain texts um, yeah. whereas I think what you and Greg do quite successfully in the book is to as I say trace the um, sociological yeah. historical roots but would it be fair to say that you actually take a more nuanced approach and accept both the, uh, the psychological contributory mm -hmm. factors, but also that there might be an ideological oh, very much so. addition when yes. people get to campus. Yes. So um, the way that I've come to think about this, a dictum in social psychology is that thinking is for doing. So if you know what a person's trying to accomplish, you know a lot about their thinking. And social life involves a lot of different games, you might say. So here are three games that we might be playing and our thinking was going to be appropriate for each game. One is the... Uh, discovery game. We're trying to figure out what's really happening. And for that, we have to bring in a certain attitude of willingness to engage, to listen to critics. We debate, we challenge each other. That's, that's what universities are set up to do, going all the way back to Plato's Academy. You have a group of scholars up on a hill outside of town, different norms than, than pertain in the public square. Uh, and if you get things right, the truth can emerge. So there's the truth-seeking game, let's call it that. And that's one that's always been played on university campuses to some degree. Then there's the uh, helping game. Someone's suffering. Someone's in trouble. Let's help them. Let's figure out how can we best help that person. Uh, and in general, knowing the truth will help you help a person better. But it's two different mindsets. And then there's the war game, us versus them. Uh, and this is the game that we typically play in the public square when it comes to any sort of political disputes. Our side wants to win. Even if your side makes some good points, we would never say, oh, you're right. Wow, good point. We would do whatever we can to discredit you. And if we can't discredit your point, we're going to discredit your motives. We're going to make ad hominem attacks. Now, the ad hominem uh, element of strategy is great if your goal is victory, but it's poison if your goal is finding the truth. And what has happened, and I think social media's account is responsible for a lot of this, what's happened, I think, in American society, and perhaps in most uh, uh, liberal democracies, is that the walls between domains of life have come crashing down. And where perhaps we could play the truth-seeking game in the classroom, and then we could go, uh, you know, go to a debate or go out for a drink and have an argument in the pub or whatever it is, um, the walls have come crashing down. So now everything is the public square. Mm -hmm. And so anything I say in the classroom, if I say one word that a student reacts to, as being politically inappropriate or insensitive, that person can now expose me, they can file charges with NYU. Um, so everything is politics, and that means that there's no more room to really mm. play the truth-seeking game or even the helping game. So to bring it back to your question, it is striking that all the claims about um, the dangers and traumas of words and speakers are they're rarely, they're rarely cited by students who claim that they themselves will be traumatized. It's yeah. that this other group, this group of marginalized students, the, their identity, their existence will be negated, will be denied. So it portrays itself as a pro-social, I'm standing up for the vulnerable and the helpless. And that gives you a moral license to punch your opponents in the face, humiliate them, ad hominem arguments. Um, and once again, um, this is normal behavior in the public square, but this is just disastrous in a university. Absolutely. It's it's vicarious offense taking. You know, people uh, take offense on behalf of others, which is incredibly paternalistic for the group in question, never mind its censorious impact as well. Mm -hmm. right. But the, uh, in relation to that, one of the things I, di I did want to ask you about in relation to the book was on this question of neo-Marxism, because it is one of the things I have a problem with in terms of the critique of the um, culture that is kind of enveloping Western mm -hmm. um, campuses at the moment. Um, and 
you and Greg do touch upon in the book, not necessarily, you don't necessarily refer to cultural Marxism, but you do We do refer, have one reference to Marx, and yes, we do have a section on Marcuse. Mar- that's true. And you yes. refer to Marcusianism. <clears throat> so Herbert Marcuse, yes. and listeners will no doubt know that he was a, a 20th century uh, philosopher related to the Frankfurt School, mm-hmm. um, a Marxist thinker who very influential it's it's a very nuanced take on what has become a fairly standard critique of campus culture which is this idea that it's it's a neo-marxist takeover it's a cultural marxist takeover and in fact one of the british appreciations of your book um i think is headlined something like the neo-marxist takeover Uh of the university Uh and and i I just want to see what you think about this because the reason i have a problem with this is because when i speak to right-wing friends of mine i always say to them if it's marxism you're worried about you should be really thrilled by what's happening on campus because to my mind it is evidence of the death of marxism because marxism was primarily concerned with questions of economic power it also had um ideals to do with universalism the universalism Mm. of class in particular Um, whereas it strikes me that what's happening on campuses at the moment is is in many ways the precise opposite of that so these are um, supposed left-wingers who actually have abandoned many of the ideas of economic power Mm. and class inequality and and feel uncomfortable with questions of class in fact probably because many of them come from pretty affluent backgrounds Um, and instead of the universalism of the class experience or any kind of universalism they push as you guys describe very well in your book the sectionalism and the fragmentation and and the division of identity politics so i wonder if it might be time um, and I'm asking for your opinion on this rather than you accuse, accusing you of, of having okay. done this. I wonder if it might be time for the critics of campus culture to move on from the idea that this is a form of Marxism and to try to co- discover a new 21st century language to describe more accurately the problems that are happening on campus. Yeah. So Marx has always been one of the major figures in the social sciences, mm. um, uh, an area of thinking where if you're not expert in it and you, and you step too far in, you're, you're sure to get it wrong. All we really mean in the book when we, invoke, when, when we invoke Marx is that Marx saw society as a struggle between groups. In his case, it was social classes related to the new industrialized order of Britain and, and Europe. And of course, there's some truth to that. Mm-hmm. I mean, the classes really were, I don't know if classes were contending, but obviously things were changing. Um, the capitalist class was doing things and rearranging things that were a benefit to itself. So I don't want to dispute the value of Marx. What I want to dispute is the danger of a single lens. And this is something I feel very, very strongly about, that um, a good education is one that gives you multiple lenses. Uh, I'm a social scientist. Um, social science, you know, we, we have a phrase that you probably haven't written too, like, it's not rocket science. Yeah. You know, like rocket science <laughs> is the hardest thing in the world. But rocket science is actually pretty easy um, because... You know, there's usually one equation, one truth. I don't know anything about it, actually. But <laughs> but social science, I think, is a lot harder than rocket science because with social science, there are so many lenses and no one person can be so brilliant that they can get it right. We, we all take views biased by what we want to believe. And so you need multiple lenses, multiple perspectives, multiple theoretical tools. If somebody went to university and all they learned was Freudianism, everything was about sex, they should ask for their money back. What a terrible education. Mm. Suppose someone else went to a libertarian university. Everything was about self-interest. Everything was you know, classical economics, and uh, uh, people only did things for, because of greed. Well, sure, they sometimes do, but that would be a terrible education. And I think some students at American universities, especially at uh, um, certain progressive liberal arts colleges, depending on what they major in, they learn to interpret everything through the lens of groups struggling for dominance and power. That would be, that's all we mean by a Marxist Mm, lens. Um, And so that I think is a a problem. We don't talk about like a neo-Marxist takeover because that makes it sound like it's a conspiracy, like there's something organized. And it's not. You know, even in anthropology or English or sociology, where you have a lot of people who would take a Marxist perspective at times, they go into work not thinking, how can I get my students to fight the revolution? No, they go into work to do their scholarship. And in the process of teaching, they might reinforce students seeing American society as a matrix of oppressive binary identities. Mm. And the net effect of that, I think, is overall harmful. Um, We have made enormous progress in American universities, in American society, uh, in getting away from judging people by groups. 
And my fear, and what we say in the chapter, is that there's a form of identity politics, we call it common enemy yep. identity politics, where we teach students to judge people very quickly by their race, gender, and other observable features, and to make moral judgments about them. That is, again, so poisonous if you're trying to create a diverse society. Yes, I completely agree with that. And um, my argument would be that in many ways, identity politics is the offspring of the defeat of Marxism. But this is a whole other discussion because the, the very prominence that is given to questions of agenda and sexuality and race and all these other uh, rather fragmentary life experiences or all, all natural characteristics seems to me to be to, to represent a negation of the more universal aspirations of the left in the past, mm. which was it doesn't matter where you come from, you can join us in this struggle against oh, the economic order. So, <clears throat> I uh, so I, I do think um, there is an issue there. And, and it's more than semantics. It's the question of, um, and I think you're absolutely right to say that you and Greg don't go down this conspiratorial route, which I think is a, is a really important thing to resist, because there is this temptation, I think, almost to find the entire perfect synthesis to describe yeah. what's happening on campus. And yeah. I think some people get trapped when they That's try right. and do that. Yeah. But so, I think uh, in relation to that, I just wanted to ask you, because one of the concerns I have with the way in which that language is used, you know, cultural Marxism, neo-Marxism, the, the takeover and so on, mm -hmm. is uh, is what it says about the left. Because one of the concerns I have in relation to this issue more broadly is that it's very strikingly the right seems to become the dominant force in defending freedom of speech. And every attack on freedom of speech is presumed to be um, an act of left-wing politics. So mm -hmm. it's now it, almost entirely in this kind of discussion that you and I are having and, and in the public sphere more broadly, it's assumed that the left is pro-censorship mm -hmm. and it's assumed that the right is pro-freedom. Now, historically speaking, yeah. you could say it was entirely the opposite case where the right would have been the people um, wanting to ban communist literature and engaging in McCarthyite witch hunts, for example. And the left, you could have argued, were at the forefront of the counterculture in the 1960s, and they were arguing for the right to publish um, homosexual literature and provocative art and certain forms of pop music. So do you think there's an element where there has been almost like a flip reversal um, and one of the responsibilities of people like you and me who consider ourselves in some way mm -hmm. as coming from a left-wing oh, yeah. background yeah. or a democratic background or a kind of whatever you mm -hmm. want to call it, there's a responsibility on our part to remind people that the, the left is not necessarily as in favor of censorship mm -hmm. as you guys think. I think, yes, I think that's very well put. Um, in general, uh, Greg often points out free speech or the commitment to free speech is not a natural or easy thing. Um, what's natural and easy is blasphemy laws, uh, burning heretics at the stake. That's what we evolved to do. Um, and it, you know, it's easy to point, especially for sort of secular folk, it's easy to point to the extremes of religious communities that have done that at times. And what many critics uh, often from the left are saying about campus culture is that in a way we're recreating blasphemy and heresy laws on campus. Now, a really sad state of affairs in the United States is that if a protest has uh, the word free speech in it, it could actually be Nazis who are running the protest. It's, it's kind of crazy, but Nazis argue for free speech and progressives or, li or liberals, as we call them in this country, um, are uh, they're not arguing against free speech. This is very important. Survey research shows everybody favors free speech in the abstract. What's happening is um, uh, people are willing to make trade-offs. And so conservatives have long been willing to say free speech is important unless you criticize the United States. Then that's treason and we're going to shut you yeah. down or arrest you. So as I say in The Righteous Mind, uh, follow the sacredness. If you know what a group holds sacred around it, you'll find a ring of motivated ignorance. And I could add now, and blasphemy charges. Yeah. So on the left on campus, it's not that they're opposed to free speech. It's that they have sacralized diversity and inclusion. These are very important values. Um, but, you know, you and I were raised in the 20th century when there was some sense that the people older than us had fought the Nazis and then the, you know, the Soviets. Um, and I don't know what in Britain, but in America, we always said, you know, if someone said, you have to, you know, you have to clean up now, you could say, it's a free country. I can do what I want. Mm. I don't think any kid has said it's a free country since the 20th century <laughs> in America. Uh, you don't hear that anymore. Um, so freedom was a, and liberty, these were real 20th century values. But with the threat of totalitarianism gone, 
And with the, the turn, since the new left, the turn to issues of race, gender, sexual orientation. Now, these are wonderful trends. These are rights revolutions. But as the younger generation has made issues of diversity and inclusion sacred, now, um, if someone, as we just had a case, it was uh, published in Quillette uh, recently, um, if a mathematician were to write a paper analyzing Darwin's suggestion that there's more variability in men than women. This is actually very well known to be true. It's not actually controversial. But if someone were to say this in print and an article were to be published, well, this could be a threat to diversity and inclusion. Mm. This could be used to justify why, since the implication is there are, basically since the standard deviation on cognitive performance is bigger for men than women, the, the average is identical, but there are more men at the bottom and more men at the top. And several people in the last 30 years have suggested that this could be why women are underrepresented um, at the very top of math and science. Most of those people have been fired. Um, uh, Larry Summers, the president of Harvard, uh, lost his job in part for that comment. Um, obviously, uh, James Damore at Google was fired for saying something similar. So um, it's not that the left, the academic left, doesn't like free speech. It's that they, they've made diversity and inclusion so sacred that if someone says something they take to be a threat, they don't have any free speech protection. I, I agree with what you've just said in relation to the, um, the scandal, in fact, of, of uh, the consequences of this sacralization. Because when you sacralize particular ideas or ideologies or, or ways of approaching the world, then the inevitable consequence is that you will freeze out or shut down or shout down yes. anyone who is seen as transgressing your particular or, or almost exactly. religiously held belief. It, yeah, <clears throat> psychologically, it is a religiously held. Yes, belief. and I think that's that's the key problem that we face on campuses in both America and the UK. Uh, and I wanted you just to explain a little bit about um, why you think that's bad. I know that sounds mm -hmm. like a very yeah. obvious question, but it, I find it a very useful exercise when I go to mm -hmm. campus just to say to people why I think censorship is bad and why I think free mm -hmm. speech is good, because very often they haven't heard yeah. these arguments. And it strikes me that one of the my view is that one of the key problems with the ideology of the safe space is that it's worse for the people inside the safe mm -hmm. space than yes. it is for the people outside of it. Now, of That's course, right. for the people who are frozen out, who are unacceptable or verboten or too blasphemous to be allowed onto campus, it's bad, of course, because they cannot express themselves. But it's worse for the people inside the mm -hmm. safe space because... Uh, they, the ideology of they the don't safe get space, smarter. They, they don't, don't get, get smarter, stronger. and it's right. it, the safe space is in many ways the the midwife of ignorance because you are not um, exposing yourself to alternative ways of thinking, and you are not subjecting your own ways of thinking to criticism and ridicule and questioning and so on. And of course, this is one of the key points that has been made by thinkers thinkers throughout history. You know, Cardinal John Henry Newman, the great nineteenth century. Anglican turned Catholic thinker mm -hmm. argued that um, the human intellect does from opposition grow. It's only through being opposed and questioned that your intellect sharpens. Yep. And of course, exactly. John, right. Stuart and that's John Stuart Mill, Mill. who yes. is a, yes. a hero of both of ours, I believe. Right. Uh, his key argument in, in many ways in On Liberty, which I think is the finest thing written about freedom of thought and freedom of speech, is that it's only through allowing yourself to be criticized and allowing your ideas to be criticized that you can be sure that they are right. Exactly. And that that's you right. give yourself the freedom to change your mind. So I wonder if you could just say a little oh, bit my God. about this is like my favorite topic. the danger of the safe space yes, for the absolutely. people who institutionalize the yeah, space. that's right. So um, human intelligence is not there to find the truth. Uh, it is largely there to navigate the web of social relationships. We're very good at justifying uh, what it is that we want to do and managing our reputations. Uh, but if you actually want to get smarter, if you actually want to learn something, um, we need someone who does us the favor of, of, of challenging our confirmation bias. Uh, and that's what universities do when they work well. That's what a jury does. That's what an adversarial legal system does. That's what journalists do. Uh, so we need that. There was an article, uh, there have been a few articles in the United States on, um, uh, I think, when John Roberts, who's now the, the chief justice of the of the United States, there was some, some writing on what it was like to be a conservative at Harvard and right. to be in a small minority and how being in that small minority meant they got really smart. They were <laughs> challenged. They had to defend themselves. They knew all the arguments against them. But people on the left had no idea what conservatives believed. They had no way of understanding conservative voters later on. And so the left is 
often underestimating or misunderstanding the motives of the right, as we saw in the Brexit vote and the Trump vote. Mm -hmm. um, but the right doesn't usually have that problem because they know what the arguments are. So we could easily go through John Stuart Mill quotes, but I'd rather give you a quote, one of my favorite quotes in the whole book. Um, this is from Van Jones, who's a, pro a progressive activist. He was in the Obama administration, mm -hmm. the uh, uh, green green jobs uh, czar. Um, so when when Van Jones uh, was invited to speak at the University of Chicago, which is one of the, I, I think it's the best university in the United States. Uh, he was asked to speak there, and he was given a question by David Axelrod, who was another political uh, consultant and advisor of Obama, um, about what Chicago students should do in the case of a Trump administration person who had been asked to speak at Chicago. There were protests. A lot of the students didn't want to normalize that. They they didn't want a speaker uh, uh, to say anything um, uh, about Trump's worldview. Um, and so Jones responds, and he has this brilliant response. Uh, and he starts by talking about safe spaces uh, and how, of course, you should be physically safe. If people are yelling racial slurs on campus, well, mm -hmm. that's really bad. You know, we have to do something about that. But he says, but there's another view, which is now ascendant, which is a horrible view, which is I need to be safe ideologically. I need to be safe emotionally. Um, and then he says, and here he's talking to progressive college students. He says, I don't want you to be safe ideologically. I don't want you to be safe emotionally. I want you to be strong. That's different. I'm not going to pave the jungle for you. Put on some boots and learn how to deal with adversity. I'm not going to take all the weights out of the gym. That's the whole point <laughs> of the gym. This is the gym. So if you treat your four years in college mm -hmm. as four more years in the public square to learn how to fight the enemy and learn rhetorical techniques to discredit them, you've wasted your money. You wasted four years of your life. If you use your four years in college to be exposed to all kinds of ideas by people who actually believe them, and then you engage with them in an honest way, you'll come out of your four years much wiser. You'll understand problems from multiple perspectives. You'll be a better citizen. And if you choose to be an activist for the Democratic Party, you'll be a lot more effective. The gym metaphor is actually a very good one because one of the points Mill makes is that the mental and moral muscles need to be exercised as much as the physical ones. And if you don't exercise them, for example, by uh, standing on a platform and saying, this is what I think, and allowing people to yeah. shout back and argue back and push back, then your mental and moral muscles become as uh, dilapidated as your physical ones would if you, if you never went to the gym or never worked out. You're listening to The Brendan O'Neill Show. It would be great if you could give us a rating and maybe even a review. That is a really good way to help new listeners discover the show. Just to broaden it out from, from that perspective, I want to touch a little bit on identity politics. In my mind, identity politics kind of looms large over all of this. Um, huge in Britain and the, and the United States. Huge. It's a very exciting area. But go ahead. I'll let you ask your question, well, but I've got a lot to say about I, this. Well, I have one very brief okay. question because you have previously argued, and I think this is a fairly distinctive argument and you make it well, so I'd like to hear it again. Um, you have argued that there is a good kind of identity mm -hmm. politics and there is a bad kind of identity politics. Could you just explain what you mean by that? Sure. So identity politics has become... A, you know, one of these contested terms, um, you know, often if you're on Twitter or anywhere else, you can tell what side a person's on within 12 words, depending on how they say social justice or identity politics, you know a lot about them. Um, but what we do in the book is, again, we, we try to say if there is a political movement, there's almost certainly something that they are right about. There's some observation they have that is good, true, valid, and should be listened to. And um, there was a very helpful uh, um, essay on identity politics from Jonathan Rausch, mm -hmm. who's a sort of, I think, I guess he's sort of a right of center gay activist, uh, deep intellectual. And he, in writing, I think it was in writing a review of Amy Chua's book on moral tribes, um, uh, he, uh, he says that identity politics is perfectly normal, natural, and ordinary. If, uh, you know, Chevy Camaro owners can organize an owner's group and fight for the rights of Chevy Camaro owners, that's politics. You know, wine growers can organize for the wine growers. Why can't African-Americans organize if there are issues that face African-Americans? Why can't gay people organize? So, of course, there has to be, in a political system, there has to be ways for people to organize based on identity groups. It can't be that they can't do that. That would be absurd. So, the question is, how are they doing it? Are, are, there, are there productive forms and toxic forms? Mm. And 
the view that, that we came to in writing chapter three is that if you look at the basic social psychology of tribalism, where we're really good at doing us versus them, but we're also really good at setting that aside in an instant and joining in a larger group. Um, and there are all kinds of psychological buttons you can push that make the tribalism melt away or that step it up and make it really powerful. And if you look, we went back, we read a lot of speeches by Martin Luther King and other uh, civil rights activists. Um, and, they, and of course, they were split. There was Malcolm X was much more militant. But what they do relentlessly is they talk about our brothers and sisters, yeah. our white brothers yeah. and sisters. They use the language of American greatness, of the American founding. They use Christian language over and over again. They're trying to create a larger, encompassing moral frame. So the, the, the social psychology of, 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 of referring to an all-encompassing group, to our common humanity, is especially clear in Pauli Murray, who was a, she was a black and queer uh, Episcopal priest, a civil rights activist. Um, and she said, and this is 1945, she says, she writes, I intend to destroy, to destroy segregation by positive and embracing methods. When my brothers try to draw a circle to exclude me, I shall draw a larger circle to include them. Where they speak out for the privileges of a puny group, I shall shout for the rights of all mankind. So if you humanize people and you, you point out what you all have in common, then you can make a moral argument to them that some of our brothers and sisters are being denied equal dignity, equal opportunity, equal rights. That's common humanity, identity politics. And in the long run, it works. It really worked. It changed the world. It certainly changed America. Conversely, you can say, we must all unite. We must all come together to fight them. Mm -hmm. Where them is typically straight white males is the is the devil group, um, and so that can work in the sense of if you want to bring people together to fight, yeah, pointing to a common enemy will work. But if you're trying to create a harmonious institution, if you're trying to diversify an institution like a university, um, unless you can like expel all the straight white men and 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 then unite around how much you hate them. You're going to have to make peace. And besides, sort of academic values call for you to make peace. So um, that's our argument, that you should that universities need to really be on the lookout for common enemy identity politics. Mm. One of the best ways to recognize it, we just had a great lesson in that in the United States recently. Um, the New York Times hired a, a, a woman on its editorial staff, Sarah Jung, who had all kinds of tweets about hating white people and how terrible white people are. Um, and then this caused a big debate because many people on the left said, well, there's no such thing as anti-white racism. Um, and other people, especially on the right, said, what do you mean? If you hate people because of their race, that's racism. Um, well, if you hold to common enemy identity politics, there is no such thing as anti-white racism because they are evil. Yeah. They are the oppressors. And so humiliating them, taking away their power, that is good. That's a good thing. Um, but that's a dead end for university. That's a dead end for any kind of cooperative community. I agree. And and in fact, we see a horrible um, mirrored version of that in Britain at the moment, which is where some on the left almost argue that there is no such thing as anti-Semitism. Oh, no. Um, what, because Jews, Jews are powerful? Jewish privilege. Ah, right. um, so, exactly, no, that's it. It's exactly the logic. It's, that's it's, right. the, it's the politics of privilege. Yeah. This narrow understanding of privilege is, right. is incredibly dangerous, I think. So Brett Weinstein, the professor at the at the heart of the Evergreen College scan, uh, meltdown in, in, in Washington State uh, in 2017, he said something, I can't remember the context, but he said, there are some people who see inequality and want to end it. There are others who see inequality and want to reverse it. Yes, absolutely. Uh, uh, but I wonder if um, the difference between those two forms of politics that you're talking about, which is the more positive, expansive, humanist politics of the 1960s or the 50, 1950s, Martin Luther King and others as well, of course, um, and in contrast with what we have today, which is a very sectionalist, often quite vengeful, intersectionalist, yes. um, uh, fragmentary politics. Yeah. I wonder if one of the key... Um, causes of the difference between those kinds of political approaches is is a shift from the politics of autonomy towards the politics of victimhood because of course one of the one of the great claims of the earlier civil rights movements which were incredibly important in expanding uh, the freedom of humanity and, and 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 the human family more broadly 
was their claim that we are just as capable as you. Mm -hmm. We can do all the things that white men can do. We might be black and we might be women, but we can do all of this. And we should have the autonomy and the choice mm -hmm. to do these things. Uh, you know, people forget that the March on Washington was a march for freedom and jobs. So it was, uh, it was, there was that dual mm -hmm. approach. Right. Whereas today, I think one of the key problems with pol the politics of identity is not necessarily simply that it's divisive and that people define themselves by their natural characteristics, although I do think that can be problematic, but it's a search for victimhood. So it's a search for proof that you are oppressed. And I think if you go through life searching for proof that you are oppressed or proof that you are hated or proof right. that everyone's out to get you, you actually approach life with a very misanthropic lens mm -hmm. That's right. and one which is constantly, in fact, not only demonizing your enemy, which I think is problematic in that kind of common enemy identity politics is a serious problem, but is also demeaning yourself mm -hmm. because you are suggesting or implying that you do not have the raw materials or the strength or the capability of going through life without needing therapeutic intervention or some kind of guidance or more importantly censorship the scaffolding mm -hmm. of censorship to protect yeah. you from things you don't like so yeah. is the shift not necessarily from good identity politics to bad identity politics or i guess the question i'm really asking is underneath that shift have we really seen a shift from the more positive leftish liberalish politics of autonomy towards a new politics which is much more about emphasizing your own fragility Yes. So I, so I think there's two big things going on in, in, in response to your question. One is the rise of, a, of an ethics, a, a culture of victimhood, um, which we can talk about. And then the other, I think, is the loss of any overarching moral frameworks that we now yeah. have moral cacophony. We have moral chaos. Uh, and there, it's harder to find any over, overarching moral framework. So on the victimhood culture, uh, there's a wonderful book uh, by uh, uh, Bradley uh, Campbell and Jason Manning um, on victimhood culture. That's where I learned about this. Um, and so I think, and, and they argue, they wrote this uh, wonderful essay in 2014 uh, on victimhood culture. It was the first I'd heard of it. Um, and they, they traced the evolution of moral cultures from a culture of honor in which even a very small slight a person looking at you in the wrong way, a person might use one word that you object to. And it could be construed as an as as a an affront to your honor, and you must avenge it yourself um, to maintain your honor. That's male honor. Women had a different form of honor. Mm. Um, and they talk about how we then transition to a culture of dignity, in which people were assumed to have dignity. And if someone were to insult you, it's okay to say, "Sticks and stones will break my bones, but names will never harm me." Even though, of course, that's not true. The word might hurt, but in saying that, you're saying you're not worth my time. You've insulted me. I don't care. You're not worth it. Um, so that is a wonderful basis for a, for a thriving, diverse commercial society in which mm -hmm. each person can pursue his or her own projects and will not be drawn into a duel that will end their lives. So that's what we had in the 20th century for the most part. And they argue that beginning on campus in environments where you have an extraordinary equality, this can only happen if you have extraordinary equality and you have authorities standing by who can be brought in on your side. In such an environment, you can win by emphasizing your victimhood, by saying, I have been harmed, she did it to me, and you're making a claim that you need help. And so to the extent that young people get prestige either by emphasizing their victimhood or by standing up for victims and prosecuting yeah. others, if that's how you get prestige, you will have a call-out culture, and that is what we have on campus, a call-out culture. Uh, enabled by social media. And that's what's so devastating to free inquiry is the fear that one word, if I get one word that somebody objects to for a reason I can't even fathom, it, there could be a major scandal, a major mobbing, I could be humiliated. Mm. Um, so I think that, yes, the victimhood is a new element. Uh, you know, people were, some people on the right were saying we had a victimhood culture back in the 90s. So it's not entirely new, but I think social media has really ramped it up. Um, the other piece, though, which I think is possibly just as big, we don't talk about this in the book, I've just been thinking about it, um, is that um, in America, at least, we had, we basically shut off immigration in the 1920s for a variety of reasons, a nativist reaction. Um, so America had very low rates of foreign born in the 60s and 70s, our lowest ever, actually. Um, we had a kind of a, 
a coherence around WASP culture. Um, my, my, I'm Jewish. My grandparents came to this country. My wife is Korean. Her parents emigrated in the 50s and 60s. And both sets of parents, the Jews and the Koreans, looked up to WASP culture um, tried to fit in and were successful. I mean, WASP culture was a little bit exclusive, but not bad. It actually created a meritocracy and the Jews and the Koreans and other groups did really well. And even though my parents couldn't join certain country clubs, I can join any country club. I mean, it did, you know, it just took a little while for the, for things to, uh, for those restraints to disappear. So there was a kind of an overarching moral framework. There was a sense that America is the leader of the free world. We were a Christian nation, but one that made plenty of room for Jews and other groups. So there was a lot of moral coherence when I was growing up. And I think all of that is gone now. And so it's an environment in which people are making a play for different moral orders, different moral orders are contesting. We, in a sense, we have the Tower of Babel, morally speaking. Well, that actually leads on to um, the next question I want to ask you, which is in, in relation to civility. Because one of the things that you've spoken about a lot and written about a lot is 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 the crisis of civility or the rise of incivility in public mm -hmm. discourse. Um, and I want to make a slight defense of incivility, if I may. Now, I should start by saying that I think civility is incredibly important, and it's been an important value from the Renaissance onwards. You know, I always think of uh, Montaigne, the French Renaissance thinker, and his argument was, we are men, we are held together only by our word. And if our word breaks, then all the bonds of society are dissolved. So he really put an incredibly important purchase by um, the bond of your word, the, mm -hmm. the trust, the idea <clears throat> that you would enter the public sphere by speaking honestly and not telling lies or libels and so on. Mm -hmm. So I can understand how that's incredibly important. But also historically, um, campaigns against incivility have often been driven by a rather censorious dynamic. I mean, if you, where I come from, England, in, in Tudor England in, in the 1600s, um, a, a lot of of the arguments for censorship were actually driven by an idea that we had to maintain civility. So uh, they weren't explicitly driven by the by the, the necessity of clamping down on revolutionary ideas or mm -hmm. radical ideas, but really clamping down on, on libelous defamations against bishops and mm -hmm. politicians and kings and so on. Um, so, uh, and then in 1600, in fact, um, the Archbishop of Canterbury actually banned satire because satire was seen oh, no. as an uncivil oh, no. influence. So I'm kind of torn slightly on this question because on the one hand, I do recognize there is a crisis of civility. But on the other hand, part of me thinks that one of the reasons why Trump and some of Trump's supporters, not all of them, but some of them, are sometimes quite uncivil or, or, or speak like a rabble, perhaps, and, and defame politicians who they really hate. And so one of the reasons why I think Brexit voters will often denounce those who want to prevent Brexit from happening as saboteurs and mm -hmm. traitors and treasonous and so on is not necessarily because they are bad people, but possibly they lack the political language mm -hmm. through which to push forward their aspirations right. and their ideas. And so what they're relying on is this fairly long-standing human behavior of attack through um, insult mm. or even yeah. defamation. So uh, yeah. so uh, I guess what I'm saying, I'm not necessarily defending it, but I'm understanding. Yes. So civility, is civility overrated? Uh, so <laughs> any analysis I would do is going to run away from, let's talk in general about society should we be civil in society? Any analysis I do is going to be, you tell me the institution and let's talk about what right. norms will make it work right. So let's take the easiest one of all, a university. Um, we, so here we are at NYU. We have a sense of all being NYU. Um, there are lots of different schools. Uh, there's sometimes rivalry. I hear we are in the business school. They sometimes uh, don't like the people in the policy school and the policy school don't like that, but it's a friendly rivalry. Um, we would, we would not dream of trying to sabotage yeah. each other, destroy each other. We recognize that there are all kinds of gains from cooperation. Um, inquiry is a positive sum game. Um, there are norms that are conducive to this, norms of extreme fidelity to truth, to grounding your claims in evidence. These are the norms we need um, to, do, to do the work of scholarship. So if someone were to come along and say, yeah, but you know, if there's some really bad ideas out there, shouldn't we punch the people in the face who say them? And I would say, no, <laughs> not in a university. No, nothing good could come from that. Um, 
and um, and similarly in Congress. Uh, in the U.S. Congress, there was a famous episode before the Civil War in which uh, a northern senator, I think it was, gave said something anti-slavery, and a southern senator took his cane and beat him nearly to death. Now, you might say, uh, of course, well, in modern times, if they, let's imagine the roles were reversed. Suppose it was a northern who beat a southerner. You might say, well, he was for slavery. Of course, you should beat him. And I would say in the Senate, no, no good can come from saying political uh, questions will be settled by physical force. Um, now, if we're talking about the public square and a debate down on the, you know, here we are in Washington Square Park. Um, it's a beautiful park. All kinds of fun things happen there. Sometimes there are arguments. I, I would, I mean, I certainly would say there should not be violence. Mm -hmm. But if someone wants to call someone a racist or a traitor or a commie, you know, I'm not going to say, oh, my God, they're being uncivil. Call the police. <laughs> um, so I don't think much good happens when strangers encounter each other anonymously, as mm -hmm. happens on the Internet. I'm concerned about how do we adapt our institutions, our crucial institutions, to life in an age of rapidly rising polarization, misinformation, and manipulation by foreign agents with bad intent? And my answer is we have to really safeguard our universities, our court system, even our corporations to the extent that um, the culture war now floods into our corporations and we're now going to have sneaker companies for the left and sneaker companies for the right. Um, this is really, really bad. <laughs> I'm glad you said the word polarization because my follow-on question is on polarization. And I, I often find myself wondering, without coming to a conclusion on this, whether polarization is the right word for the kind of climate we're currently living in. Because sometimes I find myself thinking things are incredibly polarized and divided and tense, and that's a problem. But other times I find myself thinking that one of the problems with the current era is actually an absence of polarization. So if you if you think that, you know, historically, the substance of the left-right divide was generally like, yeah, class between, like, yeah. it was a class question, Economic, or it was between, yeah. you know, should society be governed by mm -hmm. free market or by right, a more socialist yeah. perspective? I think those questions, they still erupt. I was handed a leaflet outside this building about a meeting on socialism that's taking mm -hmm. place in a few days' time. So those things still happen. But it seems to me that the more politics is drained of that historic substance, of those huge questions mm -hmm. that divided people for centuries, the more bitter and shrill and tense it becomes. And I wonder if this actually speaks to Freud's idea of the narcissism of small differences, mm. so that it's not actually that people are at each other's throats because they have vast disagreements about the way in which society and the economy should be organized, but because they don't have those vast differences. And so everything becomes about questions yeah. of lifestyle, identity. Mm. My question, I guess, is, is the, is the problem with the era we're living in not so much polarization, but fragmentation and the division of people into more and more sections and groups mm -hmm. so that even within identity groups, say, for example, the trans group, yeah. you even have fragmentation within right. that group. So you have white trans people and black trans people and Hispanic trans people. So I think um, I'm more and more of the opinion that if there were genuine political polarization about how society should move forward, that might be a good thing. But instead, okay. what we have is yeah. this segmentation. I see what you're saying. Let me, uh, so I think that polarization is the right word. It's a useful word, and we are polarized. Um, but what I mean is this. There's a technical debate among political scientists. There's some, Morris Fiorina is one, who have argued for a long time that we're not actually getting more polarized. And if you focus on people's views on substantive issues like abortion and gun control, um, then uh, he's right that the evidence about polarization, that we're somehow becoming bimodal in our distribution, is, is it, the evidence is not there. I don't mean polarization of policy views. I mean affective partisan polarization. I mean, how much do you hate people on the other side. Mm -hmm. And the data is very clear. Federal data collected, the American National Election Survey collected since the 1970s. Uh, in the 70s, uh, left and right, when asked about each other or, or, or the parties, had slightly negative on average views of the other side. And they've gotten substantially more negative, steadily more negative since then. Uh, to the extent that you hate the other side, to the extent that you think the other side is a threat to the existence of the country, to life itself, then compromise becomes impossible. And you can't have democracy without compromise. If, if you're going to have politicians who are sent to Washington or London with the instructions, never compromise, only total victory over them is acceptable. We, I mean, you can't have governance in that way. 
So I think that effective partisan polarization is rising. It is bad. It makes us hate each other. It makes compromise impossible. It makes democracy weaker. It empowers the authoritarian uh, uh, authoritarian leaders who say, look at those dysfunctional democracies. So, um, so I disagree with you on that. I think polarization is real. It's a problem. Mm -hmm. Secondly, I often hear that the left-right distinction has become meaningless, mm -hmm. and I strongly disagree. Mm -hmm. If you focus on the issues that governed much of the 20th century, then things might seem incoherent, but things have just shifted. Um, I've argued in my, in my paper titled How Nationalism Beats Globalism, that the axis of disagreement has simply shifted. And there's a nice phrase in Britain, some uh, guy named Shakespeare, not that Shakespeare, uh, used the phrase, are we a drawbridge up or a drawbridge down sort of people? That's it. Um, that's certainly the issue here in America. Mm. Um, are we nationalists who want to fight trade wars? Or are we cosmopolitans who say trade is good? I can jet over to London. I, you know, a lot of people, at, here we are in lower Manhattan. It's sometimes said that Manhattan is a small island floating off the coast of, of the United States. Um, people here probably know London a lot better than they know most mm. American cities. Yeah. Um, so the new orientation is the cosmopolitan globalists who are very strongly pro-immigration, and the the more parochial nationalists who are patriotic uh, and and want to have a, a distinctive sense of American identity. It's very clear. I can walk into the debate in any European country, and if there's a room full of people talking about policy issues, I can guess whether they're on the left or the right. I agree with that. I think that if to the extent that there is polarization in the West now, it is is no longer a between left and right, how your own society should be organized. But it's a, it's about the more fundamental question. Who are we? Who are we and, and what and is the nation and yes. what are borders? That's right. And I think that's, that's right. that, that is an area of polarization, which I think is fascinating and interesting and quite exciting. I might fall down more on the pro-nation side, not because I'm a Trumpite mm -hmm. or because I'm a parochialist or because I'm a nationalist even, but because I think the more globalist side of it is actually driven to a large extent by self-interest. I mean, if you look at a place like Manhattan, for example, I think it seems pretty clear that the reason the um, fairly well-to-do liberal elites of Manhattan are pro-globalization is because they benefit enormously, enormously from yes, it. Yes. You know, the people who help them run their lives mm -hmm. are immigrants who come here as yep. a courtesy of globalization. And, no more the, uh, and the money that makes their society an interesting mm -hmm. one comes through global processes yes. of finance and so on. So from both angles, mm -hmm. they benefit, whereas yes. many other Americans would see both of those things as problems. That's so right. I, I completely agree that there is still that polarization. I, uh, but I think I think the, the, the idea of left-right polarization is one that's fairly exhausted. I now want to ask you a final question. There is now a very important intellectual pushback against this problematic politics that we've been talking about, yeah. the politics of identity, the politics of censorship, the campus crisis mm -hmm. and so on, from many different areas, from both the right and the left, in fact, from the academy, from mm -hmm. newspaper columnists, there is a pushback against it. And I think that's very good. It really adds to the mix of intellectual discussion. But there is there's one concern I have, which is that I think there is a tendency almost to overcompensate for um, political correctness or mm -hmm. the campus culture or, or, or for the blank slate idea. There is a tendency now for some of those pushing back to overcompensate for that outlook by overemphasizing biological factors, mm -hmm. genetic factors. I think both are in danger, both the PC side and the pushback against the PC side are in danger of negating the one positive thing that could really help us to fight back against this stuff, which is the idea of the free-willed individual, the strong individual, the individual who is capable of understanding his or her world mm -hmm. and impacting on it mm -hmm. as he or her sees fit. I see what you're saying. The uh, what we what has been called here the intellectual dark web, uh, which you know the the dark is the pro problematic term because there's nothing dark. It's not <laughs> underground, um, but there is obviously you know with, you know from Jordan Peterson through Sam Harris and a whole bunch of other people. Um, there's a, a very active intellectual life made possible by social media, podcasts, mm. all sorts of things. Um, and what's striking to me is very few of the participants in this whole intellectual space would self-identify as being on the right. Yeah. Most people are, I think, more like you and me, you know, from the left or generally left-leaning sentiments. 
but they're offended, they're bothered, they're alienated by illiberal tendencies on the left. Now, in this country, at least, the right has completely lost its mind, at least the Republican Party has completely lost its mind. Um, there's a hideous identitarianism on the right. Uh, you know, I cannot, I, I lived in Charlottesville, Virginia for 17 years. I love the town. And I, it's, it's the most surreal thing of my life is that Nazis marched mm -hmm. through Charlottesville, Virginia. This is um, so there's uh, and, and that the president failed to condemn them or did so ambivalently. Um, so there's hideous illiberalism on both sides. Um, and one thing that encourages me is that just in the last year, now that it's clear that things are really spiraling out of control in this country, uh, now that there is really the question of can democracy survive or can American democracy survive? It's not just an American problem. It's common to many countries. I think a lot of people are getting quite concerned. And something that's very encouraging to me is the sheer number of intellectuals mm -hmm. who have written nuanced or critical views about identity politics. And these are intellectuals who are not straight white males. So I've just begun keeping a file of them. Um, <laughs> I haven't had time. I've been writing my own books. So I haven't had time to read them. But I, this is so I'll just read them. And so listeners, go out and get these books. These are all I think these are all going to be great books. Um, so Amy Chua, mm -hmm. a Chinese-American law professor, uh, wrote a book called Political Tribes, very strongly against this kind of divisive identity politics and much more for a sense of common humanity. Francis Fukuyama's book just came out uh, in early September, Identity, the Demand for Dignity and the Politics of Resentment. He's got all kinds of great essays um, on this. So he's obviously a Japanese-American scholar. Uh, Anthony Appiah has a new book out, The Lies That Bind, Rethinking Identity Politics. He's been brilliant at dissecting issues of identity in ways that I think will make them, it'll drain a lot of the hatred in, in, out of it and just make them just much more interesting. Um, Jonathan Rausch, uh, is a, a gay activist, uh, John McWhorter, African-American. Um, uh, I've also recently come across Remy uh, Adekoya. I think he's actually British. Uh, Sherry Berman. So these are the articles in The Guardian. So it's actually a very exciting time to be thinking about identity. My hope is if these books do well, and I think there's a huge audience for them, of people who are on the left, but some are somehow turned off by the narrow, hateful, binary, polarizing vision of identity is about the good people who are the non-straight white males versus the bad people who are the straight white males. Like most people aren't straight white males, don't want to think that way. And a lot of people uh, who are members of an identity group really hate being told or assumed, hey, you know, you know, like, oh, you're Asian. You must believe X. Mm -hmm. Like a lot of oftentimes the action is screw you. Mm. Uh, and so I think that's what's driving a lot of the reaction against this narrow form of identity politics. I think we're going to start to see some movement, some much better thinking about identity. Uh, here we are in late 2018. My prediction is by 2020, we're going to have much more intelligent conversations about race, gender, sexual orientation than we're having today. Jonathan Haidt, thank you very much. My pleasure, Brendan. Thank you for listening to The Brendan O'Neill Show. We'll be back next month with another guest and more discussion. Don't forget to subscribe. See you next month. And in the meantime, keep reading Spiked at www.spiked-online.com.